Hills? It's a cloudy day. How does that happen? I don't know. Glad you were with us, though, and the clouds didn't keep you away. Um, almost seems kind of dark in here. I don't know if there's other lights we can turn on, but uh, if there are, it'd be cool to, to have that, uh, with especially being dark. Uh, if, if I was to ask you to take a dollar out of your wallet, uh, it looks like this, uh, basically, a dollar. Uh, above the letters O-N-E, do you know what it says? Say it out loud if you really know it. In God we trust. If you have confidence in that, uh, yeah, this, you can say that out. In God we trust. Let me ask you a question. How many of you struggle to do that when it comes to your money? It says it right there, in God we trust, in God I trust. But when it comes to this, it's a dollar. I don't know if I'm as conscious to manage and think about what God says about his word and how I need to trust him with a buck, uh, even especially when I go to the dollar menu, right? But if I had $100, and I hope it's real, it's, it looks real, it also says, in God we trust. Now, when it comes to a hundred bucks as opposed to a dollar, I'm more likely to want to kind of consider what I want to do with this. I'm a little bit more careful with a hundred bucks. Why? Because it's a hundred times more valuable than this piece of paper, right? And I want to make sure that what God tells me about managing my money. I, I want to make sure I do that well. And what's interesting is, is you could say as a confession here that I'm more prone to trust God more with my wealth, be a little bit more interested in what his word has to say about it, the more money I have. Even though God himself makes no distinction on the amount that I have in whether or not I'm to trust in him and how I manage $1, $100, or say $100,000. And so this morning what we want to do is we want to talk about how and learn how to be wiser with our money, wiser with a dollar even, wiser with $100, wiser with whatever the amount might be. Let me ask a question to begin, and you might find it here on the screen. What is God's view of wealth? What does God have to say about wealth? There are two views about God that he has about wealth that are never going to change. Here's the first one. God is not opposed to wealth. God is not opposed to us having money. Many people believe that God says money is the root of all evil, but what does scripture say? It is the what of money? The love of money, that is the root of all evil. And we know that God doesn't have a problem with money in and of itself. is because when we look at Scripture, we can look and go, well, did that person have money? I mean, look at Abraham, Father Abraham, a very wealthy man. He had wealth. You look at King David or King Solomon, lots of wealth there. You move on to the New Testament, and a guy like Barnabas, encourager, he gave much to the church. Or you take Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who loaned, and I love the word loaned as opposed to given, uh, he loaned his tomb to Jesus and where he was buried. So God is not opposed 
to wealth or a person being wealthy. It's a view that God has that's never going to change. But there is a a second view that God has on wealth, and it's this. God is opposed to the misuse and abuse of wealth. God is opposed to the misuse and abuse of money. I want to submit to you, it doesn't matter whether it's $1 or however much you have in your wallet or however much you have in your bank account or however much you have in your savings account or your portfolio, whatever it is, that doesn't change, right, in how God looks at that. God is not opposed to wealth, but he is opposed to the misuse and abuse of wealth, no matter the amount. It's a view that God has that will never change. And so I thought about this in talking about money. You know, you might come to church and go, well, you know, here it is, and we're talking about money. No big deal. But you might be the person who comes to church, and it's been a while, and you go, hey, here I go. The next time I show up to church, they're talking about money. I told you, Martha, that's all they do at the church is talk about money, right? No, that's not the case. Why is it that we're talking about money today, specifically? I'll tell you why. It's because we've been going through the book of James, verse by verse, And when you come to the verses that talk about money, we don't skip over those and go, oh, we don't want to talk about money because people think we talk about money all the time. No, we talk about what the scripture teaches and we just take it and we roll with it. And that's what we're doing today as we continue in this journey through the book of James. And what you might find interesting is what James has to say about the management of wealth, the management of money. In fact, he has a lot to say in the rebuking of the misuse and abuse of wealth that could happen and was happening at the time he wrote his letter. And so today we're going to explore how James goes into this, why James says what he says, why he rebukes the wealthy of four specific sinful practices. And while you and I may not commit these sinful practices at all, or, okay, for me, to the degree that they are happening here in the text we're going to look at, I think it's important for us to be reminded that today's verses serve at least as a healthy warning, a good reminder of how God wants us to manage his money. Because the Bible says that God owns it all, which makes us the managers, makes us the stewards, no matter whether it's a buck or a hundred bucks, and how you manage it and manage it wisely. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and how to be wise with your wealth. So James chapter 5, there's a Bible probably underneath there. Maybe you are of the generation that uses a tablet or a phone. Whatever it is, I encourage you to find James chapter 5. It's in towards the back of your Bible. James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Before we go in to look at these verses, what I want to set it up is is like this. So I want you to imagine the setting here. You are a person who is poor. Maybe that's not hard for you to imagine. Maybe that's where you are today. Well, maybe this is, is fitting for you. But I want you to think of it this way if you're not. You're poor. You're in these Bible times here, New Testament times. And you're trying to make a living somehow. You've got a wife and kids. You have a place that you call home. It doesn't necessarily mean you own it, but that's where you live. And, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to keep your food uh, on the table, keep a roof over your head and clothes on your wife and on your kids. 
And so you hear that there's an opportunity for you to be able to make some money. So you're not opposed to working hard, working diligently. There's a wealthy landowner that comes into town, and the harvest season is upon us. And he's looking for day laborers to come help with the harvest. And you think, well, you know, maybe that's a good way. I'll, I'll do that. So you sign up. You go with some other men to go work in the fields. And you work the fields. And at the end of the first day, you don't get paid. And you thought, that's strange. I thought the guy told me we were going to get paid. Two days, three days, four days, a whole week goes by. You've worked every day. You were coming home to your wife and kids, and her expected question is going to be what? Did you get paid? And you happen to say, no, I didn't. And it's like, well, we don't have any money to buy any food. You got starving kids. What's going on with this landowner you're working for? I don't know. And this goes on. And you think, well, at least at some point he's going to pay because, oh, I'll get the, the checks in the mail kind of thing, right? And so this point goes on into a point where this man is going, I, I don't know what to do. And so in the middle of the night, imagine him, this poor man, his wife and kids are in the home. They don't have anything. They're going to bed perhaps hungry tonight. And you think, God... In the middle of the night, you go out and take a walk. Like, God, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to manage this life, this wife, these kids? I'm working, but I'm not getting paid. What am I supposed to do? Would you intercede? Would you do something? And that context is what we have here is God's response. So as we look at this, keep that kind of set up in mind of James chapter 5, verse 1. Because here's God's response through James. Come now, you rich landowner or the wealthy. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be the witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. But behold... The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which have been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. And he does not resist you. Can you imagine opening up your mail? And this is the letter you get in the mail as a wealthy landowner. Perhaps if you're a wealthy landowner and you have somebody else open it up for you and come to you. Can you imagine being the attendant, the servant, and that wealthy household? Goes, I have a message for you. I don't think you want to. I'd be like, drop it off and take off running, right? Here's this message for the wealthy landowner. And imagine then you're the poor person. And this is been an answer to prayer as it says that God's heard the prayer so here he is he has his set up James writes with a deep conviction here it's a rebuke amongst and to the wealthy people the rich you know there's no sugarcoat in it he just lays it out it is it's in black and white and based on James 1 10 and 2 6 we have to assume that these are both Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers of the wealthy landowners. So it's everybody. Nobody is excused from this message, this rebuke, this oracle that, that James gives. 
And so as you look at these, look at back at verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Isn't that a great verse to memorize in Scripture? Maybe we should memorize that one, right? No, this is not a fun verse. Why does he say this? Why does James begin this chapter with these words? It's because how you are handling your money, you're going to have reason to weep when God comes back and judges what you've done. I like to think of it as my brother, one of my older brothers saying, I'll give you a reason to cry. And so in other words, what we have here is you have, you're going to have a reason to be crying. You're going to be reason to what? To weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. It's not going to be a good day. You're enjoying pleasure now, the riches of life. But a day is coming if you do not repent. Oh, man, it's going to be a sad, sad day. Tears are going to be flowing. Well, who specifically are these rich people? I've kind of hinted on it. They're plantation owners. They're big farmers. How do we know this? Look back at verse 4. Behold, the pay the laborers who mowed your fields, so they have your fields. They're the owner. And it's been withheld by you. So these are wealthy landowners. That's the setup here. And why is judgment coming? Why is James bringing this in here? What's upon them if they don't repent? It's because of the accumulation of wealth, what they were doing, the appropriation of wealth, what the wealthy were doing, the allocation of their wealth, and how they applied it, the application of wealth, and how they handled that. And James' words take the form of an Old Testament prophet, bringing a warning from God of repentance. And if they don't repent, judgment is going to come. But he doesn't speak just because he's James. He speaks on behalf. This is God's word to you through the messenger, James, as he writes this letter. And so while these words are very harsh, and for us, we go, well, I don't know if this is completely me, that I need a harsh, like, kind of hit to my heart, to my mind, to my walk with Jesus. So maybe that's kind of how you might feel that way. Well, if that's you, which is a little bit me, if I'm honest with you, think of it like this. If you were out on a hike in the wilderness and you ran out of water and you came to a place that had fresh, cold, refreshing water, you're like, oh, this is good. You would fill up your water bottle for later, right? So let it think of it this way. Let this, these verses be like that moment that you're refreshed and reminded, I want to tuck this away because there's a possibility in my life I might choose to kind of be like this wealthy landowner who does not follow what God is saying here. And so today as we look at managing our own wealth, we're going to look at four practices to avoid and four habits to have. And if you don't have these habits yet, I want to encourage you to form them. So let's look at this about the practices. And being wise with my wealth, what financial practices should I avoid? And I put the word up there, wise, because James is the book of Proverbs for the New Testament. It is full of wisdom. So if we want to be wise with our wealth, James has some wisdom to share with us. Here are the four practices to avoid, whether you've got $1 or $100. The first one is this, in the accumulation of wealth, Avoid hoarding it. Avoid hoarding it. Look back at verse 3. 
it says at the very end of verse 3, it says, James writes, it is in these last days, which these people are in in the context of this, you have stored up your treasure. You have hoarded your wealth. This is being brought in. Now, let me just pull the car over for a moment and just say this. There is a distinction between hoarding and saving. Hoarding and saving. Uh, God teaches us that we should save, but he is against the practice of hoarding. And so what's the difference? Well, you get to talk about that in your life group this week to, to, to work through that and the difference. But let me just put it simply in this way. Uh, hoarding is a way of where you're saying, I'm holding on to everything, and it has no reflection of what God has to say. You're like, I don't care what God has to say. I'm holding on to this, and look at what I have. <laughs> As opposed to saving that has the idea, at least as I'm defining it here, of going, God, how do you want me to manage my wealth and manage it wisely? So verse 3 here, James is referring to getting more and more money for the sake of getting more and more money. It's just to have it. And, and there's a pride thing that goes with it. And so in New Testament times, there's, a three way, there's three ways a person could hoard wealth. They could have food. They could stockpile food. They could stockpile clothing. Or they could have precious metals such as gold or silver. That was the way you could do that then. And some of that's true for today. And this is exactly what's happening with these wealthy landowners. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Your riches, so these are riches, okay, but what kind? The ones that rot. So this is something that's temporary. It's, for the most part, food. And your garments, so that's the clothing that they have, have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver, another way that you could hoard wealth, has rusted. And he says that the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh. So at the time of this writing, clothing was one of the ways that you could show your wealth. In other words, you could reflect and show the number of garments that you could wear, the attire that you could put on for this occasion or that occasion or this day or that day. And that was something that was happening here. But also in the context of that day was that laborer. Remember that guy? Most peasants, in the, in the reference, the, the contrast here, had one garment to wear. One garment. That was it. So here they are hoarding all these garments as opposed to the person who's just got one thing to wear. And that's it. It's a great contrast here. And that's something that was going on in this day, and James brings it to our attention. And so, why should I be uh, uh, not follow the practice of hoarding wealth? Well, I've simply put, whatever you accumulate will deteriorate. We gave, James gives three examples of that, of what can happen with what we have. And if you think about it, you can think about what food goes bad. Is it the food in the front of the refrigerator, on the front shelf? Or the drawer down below underneath this and that and the other thing that goes bad, right? We understand that. We know that. So in the accumulation of wealth and being wise with my wealth, a practice to avoid is avoid hoarding it. The second is this. In the appropriation of wealth, avoid stealing it. Avoid stealing it. God is not only concerned with the money that is in your checking account, but also how you got it there. Look back at verse 4. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. So what we have happening here is we have a wealthy landowner who is supposed to pay 
his workers for the work that they've done. But instead of doing that, he's building up his wealth by, in effect, stealing from them. And that's what James is bringing to our attention here in verse 4. So there's a lot of different ways to make dishonest money, and one of those ways is not to pay your debts, and that's exactly what's happening here. You know, it's interesting. The law of Moses speaks and teaches that you're not to withhold payment to somebody even overnight. And I sense here that this is going on night after night after night. So it's a big problem. And the laborer cries out to God, and God hears us. Remember I give the analysis or the idea of a person going out at night with his family in his house, and he's crying out to God. And he's like, God, are you going to hear me? Well, we see here that God does hear that. He does hear our prayers, and this is an example of how he has heard this person's prayer, this poor person's prayer. And so this sinful practice is James' rebuke here. It's why it's so strong. In fact, at the end here, he says, The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. I'm guessing if you're a wealthy landowner, you were hoping that your worker who you didn't pay didn't pray that prayer. (laughs) Right? But he has, and God has heard it, and God is responding. In the allocation of wealth, how about this one? Here's another practice to to consider and to avoid. In the allocation of wealth, avoid wasting it. Avoid wasting it. The way we spend our money is important to God, and James goes into overdrive here in rebuking the foolish waste of money. Look at verse 5. It says, You have lived luxuriously on earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What's interesting here is this imagery that would have been understood by those listening to this. And and this word luxury means to live a soft life, and it's used only here in the New Testament. And James is using this idea here uh, uh, that was vivid for Jewish people. In other words, they might have a lamb or or a goat that they're feeding out because they're going to slaughter it to, to eat it. And he's saying, you're filling up yourself with all your possessions, with all your wealth, with all your pride. It's fattening you like you're not going to be slaughtered. How foolish that is. And that's what James is bringing out here. The contrast is in how foolish it is for to hoard or to waste uh, uh, our wealth. And so he writes this here. You know, it's interesting, too, with this is when a, when a wealthy person would take the meat and they would have it for that day, they would consume all that they could. And there's no refrigeration. Yes, there was salt and some of it was saved, but by and large, the majority of it was just wasted. There, and there's no like, well, let's give the extra to the food bank or to the local mission like we have today. And, and so that poor laborer could go and get food. No, it's all wasted. And here's the here's the... The, the stress that this, this, this worker is feeling and how, 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 how wrong it is for this wealthy landowner to act and to do this, to waste it like this. And so I think, I think about this and then process this through. If you only have $1 bill in your wallet um, and that's all you've got, you'll be careful not to waste it. <laughs> but if you've got hundreds and hundreds of dollars it's easier for us to waste that then. We're, we're maybe not as, as careful. 
So we've looked at this. Here's the last practice to avoid. In the application of wealth, avoid abusing it. In the application of wealth, avoid abusing it. Look at verse 6. It says, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. And so in the cultural setting of James' day, the rich were actually buying off judges, the court system, and they'd be able to get their way, and they'd be able to fund what they wanted, and everything could go their way. And if they wanted to take advantage of someone, they'd just take him to court, and the rest was history. And some reviews used their wealth so greatly, abused their wealth so greatly, withheld so much, that as hard as it might be to seem this way, that potentially this person, the laborer who's never getting paid, doesn't have food, doesn't have anything. There's no social system. There's no welfare system. There's no, there's no uh, uh, system, unions, whatever. You are left on your own. So much so that you could be in a situation where you starve to death and he has not done anything to resist what you're doing. He can't because you've paid off the court system. And so that's the setting here for this and how abusive they were and how these landowners were doing this. And so James says when it comes to this, our wealth, our money, there's four practices to avoid. We're to avoid hoarding it. We're to avoid abusing it. We're to avoid wasting it. And we're to avoid uh, stealing it. Something that we don't think about, but it's here for us to be reminded of today. Like that refreshing water. So that's what we're to avoid. But what, are we, what habits are we supposed to have? What habits are we supposed to form? The accumulation, appropriation, allocation, and accumulation or application of wealth. What, what are those? What should I do? Well, let me give you four habits. And being wise with my wealth, what financial habits should I have? And whether it's a dollar or $100 or $100,000, here they are. The first one is this, a habit to have and to form if you don't have it. In the accumulation of wealth, save faithfully. Save faithfully. Remember we talked about hoarding? Hoarding's more of the I'm not interested in what God has to say, and I want to show you how wealthy I am. Whereas saving faithfully has a mindset that says, God, what is it you want me to do? I want to be wise to what you have to say. It's being wise with our wealth, right? It's interesting, MSN Money, an article I read, said that 62% of Americans have no money saved for emergencies. Have you been there? Look at what Scripture says. In Proverbs 21.20, up on the screen, it says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. He's not saving faithfully. Here's another proverb I like. This one's interesting. It involves ants. It's a good thing about ants. We can learn something from them. Here it is, Proverbs 30, 24, and 25. There are four things on earth that are small but unusually wise. Ants. They aren't strong, but they store up food all summer. Like maybe the peach pie that you came home to and you're like, there's ants devouring. Well, they're storing up for all summer, right? They're storing up for the winter. They're storing up. That's that idea here. They're, they're, they're bringing it together and being wise. And you think about what Jesus taught in the parables. Lots of them were about money. Because we had problems then, and guess what? We have some problems today, in case you haven't noticed. And we think about saving faithfully. Let me just throw out some, some other points to this. First is this. A couple keys to remember about saving faithfully. One is this, live on a margin. 
Live on a margin. John D. Rockefeller put it this way. Uh, save 10%, tithe 10%, and live on 90, or live, live on the difference. Live on 80%. Save 10, tithe 10, live on 80. That's living on a margin. Here's another key reminder uh, to, to, for, for saving faithfully. Learn to be content. Yeah, he said it. Yeah. That's hard, is it not? To be content. Or even harder is to adopt the motto that says, use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. Use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. That's tough, but that's a good key to remind ourselves about saving faithfully. And friends, in the accumulation of wealth, saving faithfully isn't about the security that the world speaks of. And we talk about saving. Why? Because Philippians 4.19, it says this, My God shall supply all your needs. In other words, God is the only true provider of true and lasting security. Not your bank accounts, not your clothing, not the food that you have, not the gold and not the silver. Only God is the one who's the true source of true and lasting security, not material things. And if saving is not about security, then what's it about? It's about biblical stewardship. Let me give you some ways that this brings into to play. There's some blessings that come from saving faithfully, that flows from saving faithfully. Here's one of them. Saving will prevent you from impulse buying. Saving will prevent you from impulse buying. Have you ever been at the checkout line at Vaughn's and gone, oh, man, I'd like to get that? Or just go to the grand place of all impulse buying. I think it should have its word instead of its Costco, right? You ever been to Costco? I mean, that is a great trap for impulse buying. At least it has been for me, I confess. Or, or Amazon, if you shop online and you're about ready to check out, and at the bottom it says, others who have purchased this product have also purchased these too, and you're thinking, well, maybe I should as well. The impulse is there. Uh, there's a thing called Facebook. It's social media, and there's a lot of people on there. And the way Facebook has grown over the last five, six years is through their online or their on their advertising that's on there and it's customized because they can follow the trends of what you like and what you're talking about and so they'll put products that are very enticing to you that you would be interested in they follow that track that uh, with all the analytics you can imagine and the impulse to buy something because it's what you would be interested in anyhow is right there or the greatest one of all time is when you are home and your wife returns home and she says, look at what I got. I got it on Clarence because Clarence justifies impulse buying, does it not? Ladies, amen? I don't know. Okay, I didn't hear it. That's probably okay, right? The Clarence makes the difference. We're, in, we're inclined to do that. Well, saving faithfully will prevent you from impulse buying. At least it'll help. Here's another blessing. Saving will allow you to help others when they have a need. Saving will help you, allow you to help others when they have a need. Just to be able to give to a need, whether it's a family member or a friend, maybe it's an offering we take here at Grace Hills. Here's a third blessing. Saving will get your money working for you instead of you working for your money. That's the classic uh, idea here of investing. We see commercials on TV all the time. Are you going to have enough for retirement? And I'm like, man, I don't know. I hope so, <laughs> right? But it's that continual idea of investing and putting away money for later. And so in seeking to be wise with my wealth, when it comes to the accumulation of wealth, have the habit of saving faithfully because God instructs us to, not to show off and say how much I have, such as hoarding might do, but to do it because God says it, 
is wise to do. And hey, if ants do it, I probably should take a lesson from them. Here's a second habit to have or to form if you don't have it. In the appropriation of wealth, work diligently. Work diligently. And I just want to say something to you men. If you were blessed to have a dad who worked hard, you should thank them if, you, if they're still around. I would encourage you to do that. I was blessed with grandfathers and dads and uncle who I saw worked diligently. And if you learn a good work ethic, if you've learned that, praise God. Because there's a lot of kids that don't get that and don't see that. And so I just wanted to mention that. You know, the Bible has this to say about working diligently. Proverbs 14, 23, it's up on the screen, says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 12, 27 says this, If you are lazy, you will never get what you are after, but if you work hard, you will get a fortune. What matters to God is not how much money you make, but how you make it, working diligently, working hard. And a key question that might come up in regards to the appropriation of wealth is, is how hard can I work? How hard can I work? Well, let me give you some guidelines, four guidelines here. First one is this, as hard as you can, as long as it doesn't hurt your health. As long as it doesn't hurt your health. Don't work yourself to death. Look at what Scripture says in Proverbs 23, 4. It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Have the wisdom to show restraint. How hard can it work? Second guideline, I would say, is as hard as you can, as long as it doesn't hurt your family. As long as it doesn't hurt your family. You know, when I was uh, a pastor, a youth pastor years ago, and before I had Pam and I had kids, I remember this pastor coming to me and telling me, he's like, Bill, I just want you to know that when you have kids one day, if you do have kids one day, you don't need to give them everything that they want of toys and stuff and whatnot. I'm like, okay. Because you know what they need more than anything? You know what they want more than anything? Uh, no, you tell me. Uh, you. They want you. Nobody else can give you. Your grandparents today, man, you have the blessing of just being you. They don't necessarily need all the stuff, but they do need you. Uh, my daughter got a new toy recently, and I was on the phone yesterday with my son, and I asked, uh, what's mommy up to? And he says, oh, she's playing with Kendall. Because your kids want more of you. Not, they like the stuff. That's not to be mistaken. But they like it when it's with you, most of all. Here's the third guideline. As hard as you can, how hard can I work? As hard as you can, as long as it doesn't hurt others. That pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? It's not your family. It's not you. It's the opposite of the world standard, really. Look at Proverbs 16.8. Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest, like the representation we have in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Better to have little, as hard as that is, and be godly with it than to be rich and dishonest and displease the Lord. The last guideline I would share is this. How hard can I work? As hard as you can, as long as you keep your spiritual life on the same level. Ooh, now we're getting into it, right? To keep your spiritual life at the same level. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to work overtime throughout your career, but usually when you work overtime, you get extra what? Money. And sometimes if you work a certain shift, like my sister-in-law does, who's a nurse at Long Beach Memorial, she can make, I forget the how it all works, but she can make more, more money the more overtime she puts in, especially if it's like on Christmas Day. 
And we think, man, that's great. Yeah, I understand why you'd want to do that. Let me ask you a question. This is where it gets a little bit more touchy. If you were given the opportunity to work overtime in the study of God's word, would you take it? We all want to make extra money. And, hey, if I work overtime or, yeah, I do a little bit, I'll pay you this. Like, great, I'll do it. But how about when God says, I'd like to spend time with you? The PT with God, the, part, the personal time with God we have in the bulletin. That's going overtime for some of us. We want to work overtime and keep the same spiritual level. Work hard, but keep that same spiritual level of saying, I want to work overtime for God so that he can bless me. I can know him better at a deeper level. And so in seeking to be wise with my wealth, when it comes to the appropriation of wealth, have the habit of working diligently. Two more, and we're done. In the allocation of wealth, spend wisely. In the allocation of wealth, spend wisely. Let me ask you a simple question. What's easier to do, to get into debt or to get out of debt? To get into debt, right? Bam, there I am, right there. Because it was just four easy payments, right? Have you ever seen that on TV at, at night? It's like, if you just could get, you could get this because it's just four easy payments of such and such, such and such. There's no such thing as an easy payment. It's still a payment, right? And it all comes back to what do you have? It doesn't necessarily make it easy. And the more you make, the reality is the more you're going to spend, and thus, the allocation of wealth, you must spend wisely. Look at what Proverbs 21.5 says up on the screen. It says, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. But hasty shortcuts, well, they lead to poverty. Hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. It's not spending wisely. Spending wisely means having and living on a budget. And we ask, well, what's a budget? It's simply this. It's planned spending. It's planned Spend it. It means you tell your money where you want it to go rather than wondering, hey, where did my money go? Right? I'm trying to teach my kids that now. And when it comes to spending, the wise person plans, the fool doesn't. Last habit to have or form if you don't have it is this. In the application of wealth, give generously. Give generously. James said the rich man's food would spoil he said the rich man, the wealthy landowner's uh, clothing would be eaten by moths. And all the gold and silver that he had accumulated with money he should have given and paid his workers, that too will tarnish. That will go down the drain, so to speak. And so in time, for us, so were all our possessions. They will lose their value. How can you counter this? By giving generously. Look at what scripture says from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 to 25. It says, give freely and become more wealthy. That just seems backwards, doesn't it? Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. In other words, God's paying attention to what we give when we take the offering. God's paying attention to what you do with your finances. And do you consider him? Do you make that as a sacrifice unto him? And this principle is taught over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, Luke 6, 38 says, Give and it will be given to you. God wants to bless us, not more necessarily with wealth or material possessions, but bless us in the richness of knowing that, wow, no matter how much I have or how little I have, my security is found in God and God alone. 
And I can trust him by that, by giving generously. Because I have less, now I must trust him, what, more. At least that's how I've learned it in my life. And just like seeds, the more you sow, the more you reap. You know, our, our Heavenly Father desires us to be more and more like his son Jesus, right? And when I look at Jesus, I look at somebody who is extremely generous. Extremely generous. I, I know of no one else than God who is as generous. And we understand what salvation and, and all that. But just to give a, a healing and give a word of encouragement to, to challenge us. And no matter how wealthy you become, you'll never be financially free until you learn that truth, that discipline, the spiritual discipline of giving. Think about it this way. You've heard it said that, well, you, 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 can't, you can't take it with you when you die. That's true, but you can send it on ahead. Last verse I give you is this, Matthew 6, 20. It says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Store up, give treasures for heaven's sake, if you will, because there's truly secure. There's nothing that's going to spoil. There's nothing that's going to rust. There's nothing that's going to be destroyed. It's guaranteed. You can, if you will, take that to the bank, God's bank, because that's, he's in control of that. It's interesting. I like the story of the rich man who died and went to heaven, and when he was taken to his shack instead of the mansion he was expecting to see, he asked, why am I stuck just with this shack? To which the attendant said, well, this is all the material you sent on ahead because you lived life there on this planet all for this life now, not thinking about giving and what God could do for your future. So in seeking to be wise with my wealth, when it comes to the application of wealth, have the habit, form the habit, if you don't have it, of giving generously. You know, this series in James is about living out our faith. As I look at this, I think of, man, this takes some faith. This takes some trust. So when I look at my $101 here, and I go, you know what? In God we trust. In God we trust. What's the value of that for you? Where is that lie for you today? Are you trusting God with the wisdom that James has given us here today? But the principles that we've looked at, the practices to avoid, the habits to have and to form if we don't have them. And so if you truly desire to live out your faith, even in the area of our finances, if that's where your heart is, then trust God to the wisdom of what his word teaches us. And no matter how many $1 bills you have, no matter what you have in your bank account, I promise you, according to the authority of scripture, you will be rich in the economy of God's, uh, of God's eternal comedy, uh, economy. If I could say it, I'd love to do that too. In the currency of God's eternal economy. Thank you for the opportunity to share this with you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the privilege it is to share your word. And Lord, I pray that for each of us, God, we would be wise with our finances, that, God, we would be sensitive to what your word has to teach us about our wealth, God. Lord, I thank you for all that we do have. Lord, your word teaches that everything we have is from you. And, Lord, that makes us then the managers, the stewards. God, help us to be wise stewards, to have these habits, to form these habits, 
so that, God, no matter what dollar we have amount, the amount we have, God, we, we would be seen by you as being wise. Lord, and we can take that to the bank. And I thank you for the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.